0: It's time for Supply Chain Now, broadcasting live from the supply chain capital of the country, Atlanta, Georgia. Heard around the world, Supply Chain Now spotlights the best in all things supply chain, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and the critical issues of the day. And now, here are your hosts... Hey, good morning. Scott Luton here with you on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's show. On today's show, we're continuing a new series this week in business history. So in this program, we're taking a look back at the upcoming week and then sharing some of the most relevant events from years past. Of course, mostly business focused, with little dab of global supply chain. And occasionally we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So, I invite you to join me on on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, join me, if you will, for this week in business history for the week of June 29th. So, let's start with our featured story. On June 29th, 1956, the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 is signed by U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, a move that would create, of course, the U.S. interstate highway system. According to the American Trucking Association, trucks move roughly 71.4% of U.S. freight by weight. In 2019, the trucking industry in the U.S. was about $700 billion strong and almost employed 6% of all full-time jobs in the country but where would we would we all be including the trucking industry especially without our interstate highway system that's a great question shipping stuff would be a lot more expensive for starters and it'd be much uh, it'd be a much bigger hassle to get to about anywhere and come to think of it neil page and dell griffith would have had a lot fewer options in their quest to get home to chicago in time for thanksgiving via planes trains and automobiles. But rather than explore hypothetical scenarios, hey, let's look back at a few factors that gave rise to Ike's big dream of an American Autobahn. At the end of the 19th century, roads were a mess. No nice, smooth concrete or asphalt that we all come to expect these days. Nope. A lot of dirt roads, packed dirt roads, or when it rained, muddy, sometimes impossible impassable, impossibly impassable roads. But keep in mind, there weren't many cars as we moved into the start of the 20th century. So the demand was in check, right? As we all know, that was just about to change thanks to Henry Ford and a variety of other entrepreneurs. It's been estimated that there are about 250 million cars and trucks in the U.S. these days. With the U.S. population at about 328 million people, that is roughly one vehicle per 1.3 people. But back in the earliest years of the 20th century, there was one motorized vehicle per every 18,000 Americans. By 1910, though, hundreds of U.S. manufacturers had entered the automotive industry. By the 1920s, Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler were deemed the big three manufacturing a dizzying array of vehicles, and Americans were buying them left and right. The Great Depression certainly slowed things down, caused most of the car manufacturers here in the States to shudder. World War II would also massively intervene. But come the late 1940s and certainly the 1950s, happy car-buying days would return. Interestingly enough, President Dwight D. Eisenhower would be sworn into office in January 1953. And as Ike set up shop in the White House, he brought with him a grand vision to transform American roads. Two key events that President Eisenhower would experience firsthand were critical to how he viewed this infrastructure need in the U.S. First up, in 1919, then Major Eisenhower, a U.S. Army officer, was part of a transcontinental Army convoy that traveled from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco, mostly using the Lincoln Highway. It's been said that due to the road conditions, the, the large convoy averaged five miles per hour, which explains why they left D.C. in July 1919 and arrived in San Francisco two months later. Two months later. As was a major part of the plan, this illustrated to the American people the need for better roads. Secondly, critical to Ike's determination to make a major investment in U.S. highway infrastructure, his time in Germany during World War II, where he saw the Autobahn network's efficiency firsthand. With those experiences in mind and and determined to make an early impact, President Eisenhower pushed for action. Now, keep in mind, the president wasn't the first dream of a national highway system, and there had been past presidents set for for a national system of highways. The Federal Aid Highway Act of 1944, for example, laid out a plan for a 40,000 mile national system of interstate highways but the catch and the reason why nothing happened it didn't include any specific provisions as to who would pay for those miles and miles of nice roads with the federal aid highway act of 1956 which was passed by congress and signed by the president the bill allocated 26 billion in funding with the federal government covering 90% of that. On a side note, the legislation passed was also referred to as the National Interstate and Defense Highways Act. That's right. President Eisenhower believed that the U.S. military would need a better way to move troops and equipment in the event the country was invaded. Thankfully, that, lead, uh, that need, rather, has never been tested. Okay, so now that we had a highway bill and money in 1956, guess who was the first state to break ground? The show me state. That's right. Missouri would break ground on August 13th, 1956 on what would become I-70. Its neighbor, Kansas, would follow suit and begin its part of I-70 the following month. But as President Kennedy came into office in 1960, the burgeoning national system of interstate and defense highways was facing more and more opposition. Cost overruns were at the top of the list of complaints from across the nation. And in urban American cities, the clamor was more about how the interstate construction was disrupting established communities. In many cases, families and businesses were being relocated to make room for roads, the protests in metro areas such as Memphis and Indianapolis and Washington, D.C., San Francisco, all led to cancellations of certain components of the national project, or in some cases, the interstate was simply rerouted. A lot more, re- a lot more legislation would be signed in the Oval Office throughout the, interna- uh, the interstate system's formative years in the 60s, the 70s, and 80s much of which would address many of these challenges. In 1992, a milestone is reached as the interstate highway system is proclaimed to be complete as a key stretch was completed I-70 that runs through Glenwood Canyon in Colorado. But work on a variety of fronts would and still do continue. Ever curious as to how specific interstates get their number identifications, and the rules that make up the numbering system. For starters, large primary roads have a one- or two-digit number. The shorter routes, which can often circle major cities or serve as spurs, have a three-digit designation. I-285 here in Atlanta is a great example of that. It circles the metro Atlanta area. 285 also connects with I-20, I-75, and I-85. It can be pretty confusing for many drivers visiting Atlanta, or anyone else for that matter. Back in 1982, Atlanta Braves pitcher Pascal Perez left his house in Metro Atlanta to drive to Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, home of the Braves at the time. Unfortunately, being a new driver, Perez would get lost and circle the city on 285 a few times, run out of gas, and miss starting the game that night for the Braves. Of course, all in good fun, his teammates would make up a warm-up jacket with I-285 on the back of it instead of his typical jersey number. All right, so getting back to the the interstate numbering system, major arteries that span long distances are assigned numbers divisible by five, such as I-5, which essentially runs parallel to the U.S. west coast, beginning at the Mexican border in San Ysidro, California. It runs all the way north through Blaine, Washington, and into Canada. East-West highways are often even-numbered, such as I-20. Growing up in Aiken County, South Carolina, I-20 was a very familiar interstate for my family. It made the drive from Aiken, which is just across the Savannah River from Augusta, GA, to Columbia, the state capital of South Carolina. made it very easy. I-20 runs from Florence, South Carolina, all the way west to Scroggins Draw, Texas. North-south highways are odd-numbered, such as I-25, which starts in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and runs north all the way to Buffalo, Wyoming, right there at the foot of the Bighorn Mountains. In 2006, the, the Dwight D. Eisenhower System of Interstate and Defense Highways celebrated its official 50th anniversary. Make, make no mistake, the massive public works project has made a tremendous impact on our country and our continent. From a business standpoint, it's been a huge resource. Consider this as stated by Justin Fox from Fortune Magazine. Quote, thanks to the new road network and containers that could easily be moved from ship to train to truck, Overseas manufacturers and, and domestic upstarts were able to get their products to market in the U.S. more quickly than ever before. New distribution networks arose that were vastly more efficient and flexible than the old, end quote. But as with any change, you win some and you lose some. As the interstate routed and rerouted American cities and towns, in many cases the diverted traffic led to the demise of many communities. Such as Peach Springs, Arizona. Before I 40 was completed just south of the town, Peach Springs enjoyed 32 active businesses. As of 2018, only two active businesses could be found in Peach Springs. While the iconic US Route 66 does come through the town, most traffic and consumers cling to I 40, which was built just about 20 miles south of the city. So what lies ahead for the interstate system? Who's to know? I would say probably more construction, certainly more autonomous vehicles. In fact, interstates will really be able to help us out there as we continue to develop develop that technology. And once we get past this unique year that is 2020, absolutely, without a doubt, a lot more explorers driving across the beautiful stretches of this great country, looking for cities and experiences big and small. So let's take a look in a more succinct way on some of the other notable historical items on this week in business history. On July 1st, 1874, the first commercially successful typewriter would hit the market. Known as the Scholes and Glidden typewriter, 4,000 units would sell by 1877, principally designed by Christopher Latham Scholes, who appropriately would also invent what is known as a QWERTY keyboard, Q-W-E-R-T-Y. You've got one in front of you probably. It's used everywhere in the world now. Sholes and his partners tried a few times to manufacture and market the product successfully, the one they had invented. But that wouldn't happen for them, unfortunately, and the rights to the typewriter would be sold in 1873 to a firearms manufacturer that was attempting to diversify. E. Remington and Sons refined the device and had some luck with sales, but would sell the line of business to the standard typewriter manufacturing company, Incorporated, in 1886. The typewriter would go on, of course, to be found in businesses everywhere. The device would not only provide speed and productivity, but the information that it quickly produced was easily legible. Unlike, in some cases, the furious shorthand that many a clerk and secretary would use prior to the typewriter. Of course, by the 1970s and certainly the 1980s, the typewriter was being phased out by word processors and personal computers. Interestingly enough, in certain parts of the world where electricity is not particularly reliable here this in 2020, typewriters are still used quite a bit. And there seems to be a newfound interest amongst a variety of professionals, including writers who bemoan all of the distractions that a PC brings. Hey, I can relate. On June 30th, 1953, the first Chevrolet Corvette would roll off the assembly line in Flint, Michigan. At the end of World War II, Harley Earl, who happened to be born in Hollywood, California, had noticed that service members returning from the war in Europe were actually bringing vehicles home with them. MGs, Alfa Romero, Romeos, and and, and the like. He would eventually kick off Project Opal which would deliver the automotive classic known, at, known worldwide as a Corvette. General Motors would make 300 Corvettes in 1953. They were largely hand-built, and each of the vehicles had white exteriors, red interiors, and a black canvas top. In 1954, almost 4,000 Corvettes were built, but almost a third of the vehicles didn't sell by the end of the year. Initially built in Flint, Michigan and St. Louis, Missouri, Bowling Green, Kentucky has been the exclusive home of Corvette manufacturing for more than 30 years. And the Corvettes, well, they did catch up, sales caught up. They became immensely popular amongst Americans and worldwide. And since the plants right there in Bowling Green, Kentucky started up in 1981, it's produced more than 1 million Corvettes. On July 2nd, 1962, the first Walmart opens for business in Rogers, Arkansas. 44-year-old Sam Walton, a former J.C. Uh, JC Penney employee, had run a five-and-dime store for years, which was actually a smashing success. One, wanting to do even more to serve his customers, Walton would find success with the first Walmart in Rogers, a city in Benton County, Arkansas. Five years later, Walton would have 24 stores across the state. And of course, the rest is history. Interesting to our team as of late here at Supply Chain Now is Walmart's continued efforts at improving its customers' e-commerce experience. It'll be interesting to see how the Walmart Plus program and the new alliance between Walmart and Shopify stack up against Amazon in the months ahead. And finally, on June 29, 2007, Apple Incorporated releases its first mobile phone, of course, the iPhone. As much as the telephone, the automotive, the PC, and other legendary inventions have done, The iPhone certainly changed the world when it was released in 2007. Apple's only other handheld device at the time in 2007 was the iPod. Hey, do you remember those? I barely do. The dominant smartphone device manufacturers in 2006, the year before the iPhone release, were Nokia, Research in Motion, which is, of course, the company behind BlackBerry, and Motorola. And Palm, do you remember that? Do you remember the Palm Pilot? All the major major products looked largely the same. You know, you got your screen on top and physical buttons on the bottom. The iPhone moved it all to a touchscreen, setting the standard for the industry for years to come. And the iPhone had plenty of skeptics. Then Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer told USA Today in April 2007, quote, there's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share, end quote. Jim Basile, co-CEO of Research in Motion, again, the folks behind BlackBerry, said at the time in 2007, he told the Wall Street Journal, quote, It's okay. We'll be fine, end quote. Of course, the iPhone, which would sell $6 million in its first year, would turn the smartphone industry on its head, And it would change Apple forever as well, becoming essentially its flagship product around the world. Hey, that wraps up our look at the week ahead from a business history standpoint. Those were some of the stories that stood out to us. But hey, what do you think? What stands out to you? Tell us. Shoot us a note to Amanda at SupplyChainNowRadio.com or hey, join our Supply Chain Now Insiders group on LinkedIn. Share your feedback and perspective there. Hey, we're here to listen to you. I hope you've enjoyed this third edition of This Week in Business History, focusing on the week of June 29th. Hey, on that note, be sure to check out a wide variety of industry thought leadership, live streams, webinars, podcasts, you name it, supplychainnowradio.com. Find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Hey, on behalf of the entire team here at Supply Chain Now, this is Scott Luton wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best. Hey, do good, give forward, and be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time, everybody, on Supply Chain Now.